0: power make us believe that they can lead a clean war. There's no clean war. War is awful. War is loss of life. War is brutality. War is death. And I think that to portray it differently is basically a flat lie.
1: Hello and welcome to Displaced, I'm Grant Gordon. And I'm Ravi Gurumurthy and we're your co-hosts on the show
2: Displaced is a partnership between the International Rescue Committee, where Grant and I work, and Vox Media. And this is the podcast to listen to if you want to understand the global refugee crisis and how the nature of
1: war is changing displacement. Today on Displaced, we have got Dr. Joanne Liu, who is the international president of Doctors Without Borders. One of the reasons that we're really excited to bring Dr. Liu on is because MSF has traditionally been one of the most principles, value-oriented, humanitarian organizations out there. It's the perfect type of organization to actually fundamentally question the very nature of how we're thinking about the future of war, our focus on new technologies and strategies from an organization who is on the front lines.
2: Let's get to it. John Liu, welcome to Displaced. Thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you very much. I just want
2: to start by taking you back to a quote that I read from 2016. You addressed the UN Security Council in in May of that year, where you asked, what are individuals in wars today? Expendable commodities, dead or alive. Patients and doctors are legitimate targets. Can you just say a little bit more about why you felt you needed to say that at that time?
0: Well, we have to put back things into context. And then that speech was given at the United Security Council on May third, 2016, which was the briefing for the Resolution 2286 on the protection of the medical mission in uh, wartime? Previously to that, it was the striking event of the attack of uh, the Kunduz Trauma Center on October 3rd, 2015, where for the first time in our history, a hospital was bombed. It's not the first time a hospital was bombed, but repeatedly bombed over an hour and 15 minutes on the same spot on a precise spot of the central building of our trauma center, 42 people died, 14 of our staff. And basically, what we decided after that was to say, how can we change that tragedy in something a little bit more positive? And and we we wanted to get a political signal that uh, somehow the medical mission, meaning the patient, the medical facilities, the medical equipment, and and the caregiver, the medical staff, were still under the common understanding of being protected, even in wartime.
2: I think that tragedy got a huge amount of attention. What was the kind of response that you, you felt in the room and, and afterwards?
0: Well, it's quite interesting because just for you, <laughs> for the audience to understand, the reality is the briefing is happening after the vote, which, which is really something that I never thought of. And, and, and so then after that, you feel that that what is the weight of that and, and, and the power of influence of that speech if we are doing it after the vote. And so therefore, I don't think that it was uh, picked up that much around the world, but I think for the team, our team, MSF team in the field, working in 70 countries at the front line of, of crises, that was an important speech, because for them, at the highest level of security governance of the world, the international prison of MSF came and pled their, their concern and what they are facing. To that extent, even if I've been internally and externally quite criticized for that, I still think that it was worth it.
1: You've been working at MSF since 1996 for over 20 years now, and it, this 2016 attack on the hospital in Kunduz in Afghanistan kind of marks an inflection point that brought you to the United Nations Security Council to give this speech. When you take a step back and look at your over 20 plus years in the front lines of conflict, what are the ways that war has changed uh, in how civilians are targeted and how humanitarians are targeted um, that you really kind of see in that longer trend?
0: Well, um, I think it's very, very hard to make a blanket comment that civilians or humanitarian aid worker are being targeted, per se. I would probably rephrase it differently and and rather would prefer to say that the way the wars are conducted nowadays, my perception and I think it's shared with, mostly with the organization MSF in general, is the fact that civilians in some specific context are not as spare as, w- as what we, we, we thought we had the common understanding. Some of us think that it might be uh, linked to uh, the war on terror and how it has created somehow what I call a gray zone uh, about how we wage war and and the fact that uh uh now what we are facing and that was what was became very very clear after the attack on Kunduz in 2015 was the rule of engagement of coalition when they wage war uh, which before was was there were like clear red line and people were at least giving the body language that they were respecting those red lines which is not bombing, hospital, no arms in a hospital, uh, a sparing civilian structure. So to
1: pull on a comment that you had made a second ago that there's kind of an increasing gray zone that's starting to uh, shape the way conflicts are happening. How is that changing the way that you at MSF and humanitarians are responding to conflict. What do you think the fundamental shift there when you look forward in time is going to be around kind of different models of humanitarian response?
0: Well, um... I don't think I can talk about other humanitarian uh, aid organization. I we're looking that, for advice. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I think that I'm going to stick to to my organization, MSF, and I think that yes, we we are engaging uh, differently in terms of how we negotiate our space and how we're talking. But we've been all the time was always our way of working, uh, which is talking to everybody before being and starting any operation anywhere, making sure that is is perceived as an added value uh, as, as, as in responding to a specific needs. And I think that for a medical uh, humanitarian emergency organization like MSF, we've got a pretty, I would say, argument in the reason that, that medical aid is, is needed and is often needed in war zones. When, when everybody leaves. I think, this is why I think that you cannot cut and paste because part of, of your carving a space for one organization to be there is as well, I think, directly proportional to the, the pertinence of the action of what the organization is bringing. And bringing medical aid is, is often something that is dearly needed in those zones of, of war.
2: So we've been talking a little bit about both how humanitarian workers are targeted, but also civilians. And one of the interesting things I think you see in the data is that there has been a reduction in civilian deaths globally in the past 50 years over that period. But at the same time, you've probably seen a rise in the number of humanitarians that are being targeted and, and killed in conflict. And just love to get your reflections on why you think that divergence has occurred um, and is it about a, a deliberate targeting of aid and health workers in conflict zones? Is that a relatively new tactic, or are we just doing a better job of documenting those attacks?
0: You know what? I think the reality is exactly what you said in the, in your B option is the fact that we don't have a benchmark. And then the Healthcare in Danger project uh, by RCRC with WHO started in. I'm not mistaken. In 2011, and and so therefore before that, we, we there's no register of those events of those tragedy. So it so it's hard to say. Nevertheless, there's anyway a perceived feeling that things have changed. The thing is, I think that it's uh, there might be more I would say event happening, but I think that the humanitarian sector has expanded so much since the time I started, in the 90s. And so we, we cannot pretend that, that the global human workforce didn't increase uh, over the last 20 years. That That's one thing. The other thing is as well, I, I don't like to have a focus on actually aid worker because, of course, we are being exposed, but we are doing it, I would say, to a certain extent, in a voluntary basis. Mm. Mm-hmm. What I'd like to put the spotlight on is on civilians who are basically collateral damage of the brutality of wars nowadays and and how they're not spared and how you know i think yemen is always a very good example is the fact that uh, because we we we're not sparing civilian structure we end up living through the biggest uh, I would say, a uh, cholera epidemic of the modern times over the last few years. We saw a comeback of diseases that we thought we'd never see again, like diphtheria. So I think that that, that for me is is where we, we need to put the emphasis, not on, on the uh, human aid worker, but the one who are the most exposed and the most vulnerable, remain the population in, in living in the context of war.
2: That's a fantastic point. I think we should Get on to civilian targeting. I just want to ask one last question on on the aid worker dimension, which is from the perspective of the the the, the, the regimes and non state actors that are actually targeting um, aid workers. What do you think their strategic logic is? Is it are they doing it because they basically want to potentially undermine the government, and they potentially see that attacking aid workers can potentially be a way of, of doing that? What are the, the diff- different motivations of of the different actors who attack aid workers?
0: I don't think that I. I am not as, uh, I would say, as clean-cut as you in terms of, of how you, you phrase things in, in respect to attacking and targeting a humanitarian aid worker. I think that it does happen once in a while, but what I see more is the fact that we have conduct of war that has no limits and is not sparing anybody. And then so we are the collateral damage of this sort of way of waging war that is not sparing anyone, including the civilian, including the United aid worker. So that's one thing. The second point I'd like to make is about uh, what I call decriminalization of people who who bring aid or or bring, I would say, solidarity to to people. I'm saying that because what is, is a bit the legacy on the war on terror is the fact that because he had created that gray zone, then we we see statement like in 2012 from Bashar al-Assad saying anyone who is going to bring aid to the opposition side will be uh, against us and mm-hmm. therefore liable. And so th- this is this this is where things are, are unraveling somehow. And then and then to take it to something a bit closer to what we see now is is the fact that we think it is completely acceptable to criminalize people who are bringing emergency uh, aid to people. I'm talking about the Mediterranean Sea and then people who are fleeing from from war and other uh, human disaster. And then we think that it's quite okay to say it is illegal to save lives in the Mediterranean Sea today. And I think <clears throat> this is a very huge step back on how we, we collectively define our humanity.
1: When you look forward towards the future, how do you think we step back from what's fundamentally become that criminalization? How do you ever kind of then convince people that providing aid isn't actually helping opposition forces um, or isn't, you know, enabling environments that are um, shifting the dynamics of war in ways that players don't want? How do do you think the system actually reduces that trend?
0: It's. It, I don't think I can, you know, have the answer to what you're saying. But what I'd like to say is, is, I'm deeply concerned about the current trend. And why am I so concerned? Because I think that the 20th century, which was uh, the century of the post-World War II consensus that we we had a common humanity. And therefore, because we have that, we've created from the League of Nations, the United Nations. We have accepted the Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, we have voted the Refugee Convention of 1951. We've created the, later on the, uh, the International Criminal Court. And because we thought that we have a common understanding on many things. And what is the 21st century is bringing us is, is a century that even at the outset with 9-11, set the tone of being the the century of somehow of fear and the century of of security. And my concern is that using and looking and responding through the lens of security to global crises, be it a conflict or be it responding to Ebola in the RC or the migration across the world, is, I think, is creating a lot of blind spot, but in addition, is creating condition of inhumanity.
1: We'll be back after a break with Dr. Joanne Liu.
2: we're back with Dr. Joanne Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières. We've sort of moved on to sort of more the, the, the ethical questions that you have to, to, to wrestle with. And, and one I want to pull out on is the tension that exists within MSF, presumably, and any humanitarian organisation between bearing witness to war crimes and speaking out against those uh, that are committed by governments, against their own people, against the need to try to maintain access to those communities. Um, how does MSF weigh those two critical but potentially competing objectives? And perhaps give an example of how you've gone about it.
0: Yes, it's always a challenge. It's a deep challenge. And and uh, at times we paid a hard price for that. I think we paid the hard price in 1985 in Ethiopia. We paid the hard price in North Korea in 1999 because we had to leave. At the end of the day is... The way we look at things is we weigh in the balances how much, how much what we bring is is bringing value to the people we want to care, or how much are we becoming, the ally of the oppressor by by being silent, and it's a really really fine line because I think the best recent example that we've got in a way that I was involved because I think there's many others, uh, is will be Libya. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to Libya last year and, and I visited the detention center for illegal migration in Libya, the, what, what is existing in those detention center, which is what I call uh, a spot of no rights, we needed to speak up about it because I said if we don't speak up about it, then it means that we, we become part of the oppressor. And so um, we managed to do it. We had to reduce operation for a while, but now we're back in. But yes, it is a fine line. And each time, so there's no one-size-fits-all you know, tactic about that, but each context is analyzed and then thought through before taking any decision.
1: Can you say a little bit more about the Libya experience? So you went there, you were visiting these detention centers um, and, tra- and trafficking centers. What was the actual thing that you were weighing? What was the potential concern that you had about ally, you know, allying with the oppressors, as you were noting, versus speaking up? Like, What was the tension there that you were examining?
0: I don't think I was examining the tension per se, but I was visiting the detention center and see what we were doing, MSF, in terms of activities. And then we were bringing primary health care to people who are basically put in those detention centers. That has been I would say uh, it's under the watch of, of the power in place. And then, as you may know, in Libya today, there is no big central power that is covering the whole country. So often you those detention centers are under the, I would say, the, the watch of, of militia. So we work in there, bring primary health care and when people are really sick, we send them to facilities where they get hospitalized. And then they are uh, as well uh, partly under our care or under our watch when they are there as well. And so the reality is what I had shared when I did my press conference in September 2017 was the fact that I remember vividly the story of, of a young man who, who was living in those those cells. Most often those cells are warehouses, badly ventilated, not enough light. You know, most of the time people are not f- fed enough uh, and and they don't even have enough room to spread their leg when they're sitting. We, we, the, the specific story was a, was a young boy, who, boy that I saw in a hospital was being hospitalized for the last two months because of malnutrition. And it was the second time that he was being uh, hospitalized for malnutrition. And then all of a sudden you, have, you ought to ask yourself the question that, that basically you, you're sending this boy to go in, in a hospital, to be basically uh, fed, and then after that you send him back to those detention centers where he's going to be starved again, and what is the sense of that? And who are we in that big scheme, MSF? My message to, uh, to the European audience was just say, are you aware this is happening, A, and B, did you know it was on public money, that this was on your public money? And so to put the two together, are you okay that your public money is being used to starve someone over and over again?
2: And when you're making those really, really difficult decisions, I know MSF is an incredibly unique organisation in terms of its culture and the way decisions are made and how participative it is. So I'm interested in how you go about making those decisions with your colleagues.
0: It's very painful sometimes to go through, especially in my world. On the other hand, I think it is very, very a blessing to a certain extent because it avoids the blind spot about when you discuss something. But the thing is, the reality uh, is is at the end of the day, it's a bit of both. And then sometimes we don't know as much because if each time you will only engage in speaking up because you hope that there's going to be tangible change at the end, you will probably will never engage in any speaking up. I would say, uh, uh, engagement. I'm saying that because I don't think that after Kunduz attack in October 2015, we were, you have to imagine that, that we were deeply upset, but we were mourning 42 people as an organization. This was our biggest loss, I think, of our history. And so when we started to speak about what happened and we asked for the independent investigation, we didn't add in mind a resolution at the United Security Council. The reality is, I think, to the audience, my message would be more that um, it's not because at the outset you don't see a, a, a tangible gain that you shouldn't engage if you think it's the right thing to do.
1: So one of the other ways that uh, I think conflict has, has changed over the past uh 50 years or so is that there have been more civil wars compared to international wars, but also conflicts have just become longer. The average conflict is, you know, 15 plus years now. And when, as a kind of emergency response organization, how do you think about and and um, react to the fact that conflicts are becoming uh, longer?
0: Well, I don't know to which extent it does apply to us because we're in the mindset of humanitarian emergency and so we're responding to humanitarian needs and then we're not in i I would say optic of capacity building as much i'm saying that because it's a bit of of a provocation to some extent because the reality is there is a shift slowly on the way we're thinking because if we take for example DRC which i think is a pretty good example we've we'll been there for more than 35 years and there's been having pocket of conflicts everywhere and every every time we we entertain the idea of leaving there's something that comes and then we we stay. and then and then there's now there's some real conversation now happening in MSF or how do we inscribe ourselves in in that dynamic and then can we have a much more i would say mid-term long-term uh engagement uh, in terms of our program
2: yeah because i think the this sort of external perception or stereotype of the M- of MSF is that you enter during a humanitarian emergency and then exit quickly and don't get engaged too much in post conflict recovery or any of the other uh, engagements that happen with governments but um what does the exit criteria look like, or the exit decision-making process look like, particularly in places where the conflict is going up and down? It's escalating, de-escalating. It's cyclical. How do you think about um, the future and, and, and planning for those risks?
0: Well, I don't think at this at this level, it, you know, it's not part of my real decision making as an international president. It's more my operational people who do, who do that. But the reality is. One of the things that we have came up in terms of modus operandi within the MSF movement is the fact that we have five operational centers, which are autonomous uh, in terms of decision-making, where we're trying to do more to have concerted, I would say, operation, and meaning that in some countries where we are the five operational centre, we really try to have a staggered withdrawal and then often one operational centre is staying behind for a much longer time.
2: So as part of this part of this series on the future of war, we've been trying to get people to think about um, how things are changing in the future. For instance, how technology is affecting the conduct of war. And geographically, where do we feel like the biggest hotspots are likely to be in the next year and, and beyond? And. I'm interested in your view on the technological side, because in one one way, precision targeting promises that it will reduce uh, civilian casualties. Um, The invention of GPS allows coordinates to be shared with governments so that particular sites can be avoided. But at the same time, we we see the kind of awful incidents that you you highlighted earlier. To what extent do you think that the expectations of technology about making war less brutal uh, have not been borne out? And how hopeful are you that... The next wave of technologies can potentially change the, the conduct of war in a, in a better way.
0: <laughs> I sort of pretty much dislike the whole sort of rhetoric that you have used. I don't think there is anything as a clean war, and I think that power makers believe that they can lead a clean war. There is no clean war. War is awful. War is loss of life. War is brutality. War is death. And I think that to portray it differently is basically a flat lie as far as I'm concerned. So I do not accept that. And I think that it's um, basically creating a new rhetoric to make awful act and gesture more acceptable to the the regular human being, the, the common being. And I, um, I push back on that. I push back. What's interesting, I think...
1: You know, I agree with a lot of what you're saying, and I think there's actually two different types of impact it's having. I think one, the kind of focus on technology and precision, totally obscures exactly what you're saying, which is war is awful and terrible. And then I think it also has a secondary impact, which is it actually has then shifted the norms of the way war happens. Um, in ways that actually extend war, as you were talking about, like an increasing gray zone or wars kind of going on for much longer time. So it's not that it's only kind of masking the fact that war is bad, but it's also then generating more of it by generating kind of a shift in norms.
0: Well, there's a shift of norm that I've been talking about, but I think the other th- is the fact of, um, to a certain extent, the impact of not having boots on the ground. When different parties at war were having boots in the ground, the concept of reciprocity was very, very, I would say, important. Because each party knew that at one point they would get some of their men or women on the other side as prisoner, and they would basically make sure, and this is all somehow the, the spirit of IHL is a wounded combatant is, is a patient. And by having this technology, I think the concept of reciprocity doesn't hold as much ground. And
2: and that's a theme that I think we picked up on in a previous episode, because it's happened already to some extent with the war on terror in Afghanistan, for instance, but it's probably even more of a risk in the future with things like autonomous weapons. It could dramatically lower the human cost of war for those perpetrators, and therefore make it more likely and ongoing and unending. So I just want to sort of move us on to thinking about the future humanitarian... But, but let
0: it, let it, allow me to add something because I think what was really, really striking about Kunduz, and sorry to come back to that, was, um, as many of you know, is, is the U.S. has taken responsibility for the attack in Kunduz. And then basically at one point, uh, a few days after the attack, they, they sort of forced their way in uh, Kunduz trauma center, the, the coalition. And when they came, they were like, ha, ha, ha. And then as they walk around the burned building and literally saw uh, uh, remnants of Pishon who have burned alive in their bed, they stopped. They stopped speaking loud, and they became and grew silent. This is, this is you know, the, the human facet of what not having boots on the ground and not seeing... The impact of what you're doing. That's what I was trying to convey as an idea.
2: Oh, thank, well, thank you. That's very, that's very powerful. Can I, can I just ask you, as we look to the rest of the year, in, in 2019, what are the, the ongoing conflicts and, and humanitarian crisis that MSF is most concerned about and is, 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 is wanting to flag up for international attention?
0: Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I remain concerned about a few countries in the Middle East. Uh, I still think that Syria, it's not over, despite the fact that people want to portray it as something that is, is as quiet down. Yemen as well, because although the, the bombing has reduced in Odada, which is the port of where you have most of the import, but it has not really, as I would say, slowed down in the rest of the country. And therefore, we still have a massive humanitarian uh, situation across the country. And then I think in in to move around. Um, I think in Africa, deep concern about uh, Nigeria uh, election are coming. It's one thing. Second is the last attack in ran in, in uh, Borno states. It it is uh, unstable. Uh, We have the feeling that the opposition has has taken some uh, force and ammunition. And then with the coming of election, I think it would be an even further destabilizing uh, factor. Um, I have, have some deep concern about DRC for sure. Ebola is still not under control. It is the biggest Ebola outbreak of DRC history. This is second biggest one uh, after West Africa in 2014-2015. More than 630 people have been uh, infected. You know, we, we're taking some pride in the fact that we have vaccinated 60,000 people and then we uh, we are starting clinical trial on, on different four uh, therapeutic solutions. But despite that, we're still having people who show up in, in the center that are not part of our, what we call, uh, contact list. And then in Asia, we, we remain deeply concerned about uh, the fate of the Rohingya community in Bangladesh. And, and now that the election has passed in Bangladesh, what would be the fate of the Rohingya community? Uh, and, and so it's, it's going to be, uh, I, I would say, an issue to watch as well.
1: Can we ask just kind of one additional question, which is, you began working for MSF in 1996. What drove you to become a humanitarian?
0: When I was a teenager uh, looking for uh, guidance in life uh, and in meaning for life, I have read two books. One book was about a doctor that worked with MSF in different war zones. And I said, oh God, that's really, really interesting and cool. And then the other book that I read, and I've reread several times in my life, is The Plague from Albert Camus. And there was one sentence that always have stayed with me and has been a bit a bit my motto in life, is, is when the Dr. Rieu, the protagonist of the book, is being asked, what is your motivation? What keeps you going? You don't have the right medicine. Your patient is still dying. You don't even believe in God. And the protagonist answer, I never got used to death. I don't know more. And I remember reading those sentences, and then promising myself that I will never travelize death. And I will always fight for life. And so that was it.
1: Joanne Liu, thank you so much for being with us today on Displaced. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much.
1: That was Dr. Jan Liu, the international president of Médecins Sans Frontières.
2: A lovely accent there, Grant. Thank you. You're
1: welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> if you want more on any of the topics that we discussed today, this episode, or the series, check out our show notes at www.rescue.org displaced.
2: Next week, we're going to turn our focus to a different topic, refugee resettlement. Um, and just to give you a sense of what this means, when people flee to another country, they usually face two futures. They can return home if the conflict ends, or they can integrate into the first place they fled to. But when none of those are possible, there's a third option for a small number of refugees, and that is to resettle to a third country.
1: We're gonna be looking at how refugee resettlement works today and what innovations we can bring into the system to increase the number of countries participating in resettlement and the number of slots available for refugees. So come back and listen for that. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, email us at displaced@rescue.org or holler at us at Twitter. I'm at Grant M. Gordon.
2: Don't holler at me.
1: Not Holla, even giving I mean, your Twitter handle.
2: <laughs> and I'm at Aguramurthy if you want to talk to me. <laughs>
1: Please send uh, this podcast on to your friends. Have them subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. At Vox Media, Displaced is produced by Megan Cunane. Our engineer is Jelani Carter, with extra help this week from Michael France. And Golda Arthur is our senior producer, but she's out getting my ties right now? And Nishat Koa is the executive
2: producer of Audio. At the IRC Anna Führer is our researcher, and special thanks to Alex Bandea, Nathalie Sikorsky and Ben Moskovitz. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.